When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search. But what if you could get rid of the search and just match? You can with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. College Football Nerds here talking Tennessee and Alabama. I got Josh here getting nerdy with me. And Josh, I'm going to jump straight into this because we do a live show every Saturday. And in that live show, we do a top 10. And two weeks ago, two weeks ago, not the most recent one, but two weeks ago, I put Tennessee at number four. I got so much hate for that, Josh. Kept them at number four this week. And the thing that I said was... There's a lot of unclear, you know, parody between like four and 20, and it's hard to know who's who. But in that mess of top 10 that we don't know what to do with, there's one team that's got an elite unit, either offensively or defensively, and that's Tennessee. No other team in the top 10 has an elite offense, in my opinion, or an elite defense beyond the top three, um, which means to me, Tennessee has the highest ceiling. I think we've seen that ceiling now against LSU and against Florida. Um, but get into that a little bit, just talking about this Tennessee offense matched up against what's probably the best defense in the country. Um, I wouldn't say Tennessee's the best offense. I think that goes to Ohio State, but they're certainly up there. Talk about that matchup first. It's kind of interesting when you start to look at this matchup and trying to figure out what exactly Tennessee is as a football team. And I'll start by saying you talk about them having the only elite unit. Now, there's a lot of Clemson and Michigan fans that are currently throwing things at their computer screen. Probably some Penn State fans, too. Throw them. If nothing else, then for their uh, for their defenses. But I get at least where you're coming from. And in particular, I'll say Tennessee's offense is a more balanced, capable attack than any other team in the country that is outside those top three. It's sort of the, the big caveat, right? One of the things that's really difficult for us when we start to do analytics and modeling and all this other stuff is trying to figure out how to take apart these teams when you don't always have data on the edges. And what I mean by that is anytime you want to evaluate a football team, you need to know where their break point is, where their freeze point is. Uh, we've started talking about this several years ago. I know Josh Pates kind of picked up on it and started using his own names. Um, but college football teams generally have a point at which the offense doesn't work and a point at which the offense goes rampant and does whatever they want to do. Uh, Ohio State has been past that point all year. Uh, Tennessee is probably the other team, the one other team that has been past that point all season where they generally put up a ton of points in every game. And it doesn't seem to really matter how much you're doing. Uh, they're just going to keep scoring. And it, it really has a lot to do with the amount of explosiveness you bring into the game, the amount of yards per play you bring in, etc. Tennessee's been at that threshold. The problem is when you start to evaluate Tennessee in regard to who they've played and how they've played them and circumstances and whether those teams are really in a position 
to limit their def- their offense enough that Tennessee has to play football operating in the like six yard, five yard per play range, if that's even a, a feasible thing. The lowest number Tennessee hit on the season was 5.4 yards per play against Pittsburgh. That was a 34 to 27 game. Now, technically there were 6.5 yards per play last week against LSU, just like the Ball State game, which was you know more more around seven yards per play. That's a deceptive number. Tennessee wasn't really trying to score every drive, every play in the game. Uh, there's a lot of things that went wrong in that game for LSU, which we'll probably talk about later. So unless you think Alabama's defense is not any better than Pittsburgh, which I kind of doubt, you don't really know what Tennessee looks like when they face a team that might hold them to something normal. And what does their offense look like when it's held to more like four and a half, five yards per play? Does it have the same explosiveness? Those are the questions that we've got to figure out in this preview we're not going to figure them out in the preview, but we're going to try to show you some models that talk about it a little bit, a couple different angles to look at it, and then conversationally sort of talk about where we're coming from. Yeah, and Alabama defensively, I mean, <clears throat> people might look at, I heard some people saying, well, Alabama gave up 20 points to Texas A&M and App State only gave in 17. Look, the ridiculous takes coming out of this weekend are pretty ridiculous regarding Alabama. Their defense is, from what I've seen, the best defense in the country, the most explosive defense in the country. They gave up 20 points against a team that was going for it almost every fourth down when they could. They were in kind of Hail Mary mode for two-thirds of the game, and they inherited four turnovers and two missed field goals. Um, it's it's insane to me to think that a team gave up 20 points, and they weren't playing Iowa, uh, 20 points in that situation, and that was a bad defensive performance it was an elite defensive performance and especially if you look at Haynes King's numbers he was he threw for 253 but it was on 46 attempts 5.4 yards per they ran for like 2.8 yards per carry their production was nothing they got a couple short fields and scored some points but on the flip side Alabama and what we're going to see in the model and what we're going to see in some maybe in some predictions is Alabama's efficiency numbers are really hurt by the fact that they got a lot of yards, especially on the ground last week, and didn't convert those to points. So a lot of models think right now that Alabama's got a scoring efficiency problem. But based on everything we heard in this game, Josh, in, in terms of like Bryce Young maybe warming up in the tunnel, Bryce Young begging to go in on the last drive, he's probably going to be ready this week. And if we're looking at it, I think we should maybe – couch this discussion in a way for the rest of this preview in the consideration that he will be there. If that's the case, what does it do to your perception of Alabama in terms of one, their offensive production and two, having a defense that maybe has enough depth that even if they see a lot of plays um, might be able to hold up to this Tennessee offense. It's a difficult thing to try to try to parse out. So yeah, I mean, when you talk about the Texas A&M performance, Start with the defensive side of the ball, which is the more positive one for Alabama. First, they had to face more plays than anyone's had to face against Texas A&M. They faced 72 offensive snaps. That's most in the year. The second closest was Mississippi State, who played 70 offensive snaps, or I should say Texas A&M played 70 against Mississippi State. Uh, and the difference, though, is that Alabama held them to over a yard per play less than Mississippi State did. Uh, held them to less yard per play than Texas A&M did, even against the Appalachian State game when Haynes King was just an absolute crater of himself and their offense couldn't get anything going. As you said, there's a lot of factors. That Appalachian State game, when they lost that game 14-17, to Texas A&M ran 38 plays in that game, about half as many as they got in the Alabama game. That was the effect of the turnovers, the missed field goals, the way the game was going. They got so many more opportunities. And it's easy, you know, how do you fault a team that allows 20 points when at the same ratio in Appalachian State, they probably would have scored about 28, 30 points in that game if they played the same number of snaps. So obviously the possession count was a huge deal. That gets into the negative, right? Uh, And that has to do with where Alabama's offense is at, where Bryce Young is at. The first thing I'll say is my assumption, like you, is that Bryce Young will play. If Bryce Young doesn't play in this game, you can sort of throw everything out because I don't know how effective Alabama's offense would be without uh, Jalen Mulrow. And I'll probably just go ahead and say, if Bryce Young can't go on Saturday, I'm going to pick Tennessee in this game because I don't have a lot of confidence that Alabama's offense is going to be able to move the ball at all. And it will totally depend on whether or not they get a different quarterback. 
Uh, Jalen Milrow had the yips. You see a lot of young quarterbacks in their first start sort of get big eyes. They don't step into their throws. They use their arm. And when I went back and looked at it, there were a lot of really routine plays that weren't major plays you see in a highlight reel where he just missed. Throws to a tight end or something like that that would be a third down conversion or a sec really a conversion on second down, that kind of thing, where they're not completing these first and second down plays that put them in bad third down situations. And there were routine plays, open guys on crossers. They just weren't seeing, weren't throwing to. And I think having Bryce Young, even with a banged up shoulder, which I'm going to go ahead and guess he's going to be something like 85%, is going to be a night and day difference because I think they can complete those routine plays and they're going to be a much more effective offense than they were. Can I give you a devil's advocate question sure. though? Let's, let's say like, and I don't like doing transitive things or anything like that, but like Anthony Richardson has, I think one, I didn't look at his final stat line from the Missouri game, but has one career over to 200 yard or better passing game in, in his career. And I think, unless he did against Missouri and it was against Tennessee and he threw for 453. Um, you say you wouldn't pick Alabama and I probably wouldn't either, but let's give a little thought to the fact that like Jalen Milrow and Anthony Richardson seem to be about the same quarterback, but Alabama's got a much better run game, a much better defense. So if there's any question on you know, Tennessee's team right now, it is that defense, especially with the news of today that they're going to be missing probably a star player. Um, I think that A&M is maybe a little more poised to stop Alabama's, you know, Milrow attack than maybe Tennessee is, um, especially when we saw what we saw from Anthony Richardson. So maybe reframe this a little bit and talk about why you think that, that Alabama couldn't do the same thing that Florida did, but maybe a little bit better. Well, I mean, on the question we're talking about Bryce Young or Milrow at quarterback, right? Uh, you said Milrow, you wouldn't pick Alabama to beat them with Milrow. And I'm saying, well, what if what if they're just Florida with a better defense? It's it's a fair question, right? Is Milrow actually worse than Anthony Richardson? Because right now, Anthony Richardson's quite bad. And he did have, uh, look, Richardson has had really four games this season where he was in any way competent throwing the football, really only three. One was Tennessee, one was Utah, which he only threw 24 passes, only threw for 168 yards. The other was Eastern Washington. Um, but he was 10.1 yards per against Tennessee. That is three yards per attempt higher than any other FBS team they've played, not just P5. Um, I think it says a lot about where Tennessee's defense is. There were a couple mitigating factors in the Ten Texas A&M game. It bothered me that announcers didn't talk about. One was that, um, gosh, my, I'm drawing a blank now. Uh, McKinley... McKinley Jackson, right? Yep, the interior defensive lineman probably was set to be maybe the top interior defensive lineman in the SEC along with Jalen Carter at Georgia. Actually came back for the Alabama game. I don't know why the announcers didn't mention that because he's been out hurt for a while and their problem's been stopping the interior run. His absence is really what caused him to collapse. They also got Jason Jones back in the secondary, which meant that their secondary suddenly can shift over and get a lot more experienced and a lot better and a lot more sound and they weren't giving up the same plays they were early in the year. I do agree with you. I think defensively, it's a, it's a sharp difference. The problem is the way Alabama was executing, I don't know that they're going to move the ball against anybody. Um, I say this a lot, right? It, there are things at the quarterback position that you do that can scale well, and there are things that are consistent. Stetson Bennett is an extremely consistent quarterback. I think he will typically move the ball well against anyone that gives him open opportunities. It doesn't matter how good or bad you are. If you leave guys open, he's a six-year player and he knows where they are and he finds them and he completes passes. If you are in lockdown coverage downfield, he doesn't necessarily make a lot of hero throws. What Alabama was doing bad was they weren't completing the most readily open things. If they had a guy wide open, they wouldn't see it. They wouldn't complete the pass. Uh, it may be that Milrow can make a hero throw, but I kind of doubt it. Um, my concern is that it doesn't really matter how bad Tennessee is. I don't think Milrow's at the same place Anthony Richardson is in terms of a quarterback that can just see an open guy and, and throw it and hit it. There's a lot of confidence there with Richardson that Milrow doesn't have. And given the fact that Tennessee, this is the important part, right? Tennessee's offense is so much better than Texas A&M. They're going to score points. And so Alabama does actually have to keep pace in this game in a way they never really had to against Texas A&M, right? They got a lead. And they just kind of held the lead and hung on for dear life. Uh, I think it's a very different ball game. Um, 
I feel like I'm giving a lot of monologues right now, just sort of talking hypotheticals. And we can continue to talk about it, but I think it also could be helpful to actually dig in the model a little bit and just get all that out of the way, and then maybe we can have more of a conversation about it. Yeah, one thing I'll also add before we get into the model, um, maybe kind of a devil's advocate to my own devil's advocacy, is <clears throat> if we're looking at the Florida game itself, yes, Anthony Richardson had 453 yards. He threw for 10-point-something yards per attempt. But a lot of people, and I get a lot of arguments on Twitter where people are like bashing Tennessee, um, and they're like, you barely beat a bad Florida team. First of all, it was a major rivalry. It was a big deal to beat them at home. Um, but that game, 38-33 is not what that game was. That game was a 17-point game. Florida had to drive the field twice against Prevent, and they did. To their credit, they did. But that was still a game that was a 17-point game with five minutes left to go in the game. And, and Tennessee wasn't going to lose that game unless some ridiculous things happened. Um, so they did get into a little bit of prevent mode. So I, I think it's a little unfair to say that's a five point game. You're only five points better than Florida. I think the one that I would point to if I'm, if I'm thinking about maybe Tennessee might not be as good as their record would be the pit game. But even then that's the second game of the season and it's on the roads. So you could say the same thing for Alabama, but yeah, let's get into the model and see what it has to say. So the model this week is going to be a little, a little interesting because we'll start with our standard model and then we may couch it and sort of give a different description because there's some strange things going on. Uh, the interesting thing in the model is you've sort of got the tail of the score and the tail of the yardage. Uh, the Alabama defensively is elite. 55% of opponent rushing averages, 72% of opponent passing averages. Tennessee's numbers are surprisingly good right now in the model. 68% of opponent rushing averages and 100% of opponent passing averages. That's a good run defense. It's a perfectly mediocre pass defense. I shouldn't really say good, but that's still actually the sign of a decent, okay defense, which I don't think has really been the reputation. Um, given where Alabama's at and Tennessee's at offensively, it, it's important to remember Tennessee's passing game is better than Alabama's right now statistically. Alabama's run game is actually more better than, than Tennessee's uh, passing game is versus Alabama, if that makes sense. Uh, Alabama's run game is about 2.3 yards per carry better. Uh, Tennessee's passing game is about 2.7, 2 point uh, yards per attempt better. But from a percentage perspective, Alabama has a bigger edge there. What that means is that Alabama actually gets a yard per play advantage in the model. They're expected to have about 6.4 yards per play compared to about 4.8 yards per play for Tennessee. The confusing or confounding part, I think, to a lot of people is despite a yard over a yard and a half per play advantage, the model favors Tennessee, and it favors them by 8, 36 to 28. So the model is actually predicting a situation in which Alabama outgains Tennessee doesn't just outgain them, but outgains them by roughly 25%. So a significant number, something you're probably looking at like a maybe 400 yard, maybe 375 to 400 yards from Tennessee, 500 yards from Alabama, that kind of a result. But the score is actually eight points in Tennessee's favor. First, let's unpack that, Daniel, before we get to the next part of the model, because I think this, this helps sort of set the stage, right? I know we talked about this a little bit before because I warned you the reality here is that Alabama's yard per play number is not being translated into points. And it is due to the fact that they've had a couple games now, the Texas game, the Texas A&M game in particular, where they've had turnovers, where they've had a lot of stalled drives, they've had some missed field goals, and the model does not have much confidence in Alabama's ability to score points. Conversely, Tennessee has not been held to anything less than 34 points in a ballgame. And we talk about this a lot. When a team is constantly scoring mid-30s or above, our model starts to think, look, you're going to get your points no matter what. Elite offenses always tend to score. That's been our mantra for the past few years. So the question is, how much do you trust that? How much do you think the Texas A&M result has anything to do with Alabama's offensive production going forward? Do you buy that Tennessee's offense is in that sort of elite tier where they can score 35 points or more? And do you believe that elite tier even exists anymore in 2022 when it seems like defenses are starting to catch up? So now that I've talked for, I feel like, an hour, Daniel, I'm going to shut up for a minute. I'm going to let you comment on it and maybe give your thoughts on the model and your thoughts about trying to place Tennessee within this context. Yeah, I do think that maybe not quite as bad as it was during COVID, maybe just before COVID year, 
And then 2020, you know, 2020 and 2021 where offenses were going to score. There was going to elite offenses were going to score 35 plus even on elite defenses. I think defenses are better. Um, but on the flip side, I don't think it's all the way there. I think Tennessee is going to score on anybody. I, I don't know that they're going to hit 38 to 40. Um, but they're going to score on almost anybody. I have a couple of concerns if I'm an Alabama fan. One is Bryce Young, 100%. Two, is he going to play at all? Like This could be a lot of smoke and mirrors, and, and Milrow comes out there anyway. And it's on the road. And, you know, one of the things for me is I'm kind of willing to forgive the Texas, you know, score and situation because it was on the road. It was 120 degrees on the field. Texas had prepared for six months for this game. They had inside knowledge of the program. Um, and then a lot went wrong in, in that regard in terms of them. It just, they just weren't set up to do well in that game. But I think the same thing with, with Tennessee and Pitt. If they played again today, even if Slovis played the whole game, I think Tennessee beats them by three touchdowns. So it's hard for me to judge much from those early games. And then if you think about the rest of Alabama's slate with Bryce Young in the game, it's been Utah State, UL Monroe, Vandy, first quarter against Arkansas. Like It's so hard to know if Alabama is that elite team, because if they are, if, if, if Alabama is who we saw against Vanderbilt in first quarter of Arkansas with Bryce Young in the game, if that's who they are now, they beat Tennessee. But I'm not sure that it is. I want to see them be that team. And then are they that team with Bryce Young, you know, at 85%? I don't know that they are. I'm going to give a score on this. I think that Bryce Young's going to play. And I think that he's going to be healthy enough for Alabama to put up some points. I think that Alabama's defense might shock Tennessee a little bit. Um but even with Bryce Young in the game, I'm not picking Alabama to cover, which means it's anybody's game. 34-31 Alabama. And Josh, I'll say this before I turn it over to you. Alabama absolutely needed to win that game last week because it gives them breathing room to lose this week. They can lose this week, and this might mean that they're relaxed and chill and score a bunch of points and win big. They can lose this week because they're still going to win the West. They're going to win the West. The West isn't great this year. And so as long as they win the SEC Championship, they're going to the playoffs, which means they've got a loss in the bag, and that's why they couldn't afford to lose last week. Because you lose two two weeks in a row, you, it's it's tough to make the playoffs. We haven't seen two team cha- a two-loss champion yet make the playoffs. So if that's present in Alabama's mind, I think it could take some of that pressure off of them. Um, but I will say the same thing exists for Tennessee. They can lose this game and still easily make the playoffs. It just means that whomever loses this game no longer has the luxury of maybe being able to lose in the SEC championship game and still go to the playoffs. That's all I'll say. I think that's an opportunity for Alabama to be a little more relaxed in this game, but I want to see them put it all together on the road before I think they're going to cover a seven and a half against Tennessee. And I wouldn't be surprised if Tennessee won this one. I think that's all fair. Uh, The difficult thing really comes down to trying to gauge where Tennessee's at defensively, where Alabama's at offensively. I think you know what Tennessee's offense versus Alabama's defense looks like. You know, uh, it's possible to score on Alabama's defense. I think it's extremely hard. I I think it's as hard as it was to score on Georgia last year. I think Tennessee is better offensively. I think Alabama, I don't know if they're quite, quite as good as Georgia was last year defensively, but in terms of pass defense, they might be as good or better. Um, We've talked about a lot where those statistics are at. You know, 70% of opponent passing averages is an elite number. 55% of opponent rushing averages is an elite number. It's hard to score. So I think in reality, this number of 36 that's by Tennessee is unrealistic. One thing I decided to do was to go back and try to adjust for these sort of weird happenstance things that have happened in the last week and the weirdness that was in the model. So I went back and I looked at a data from a week ago. I said, okay, let's throw out the LSU game for Tennessee. Because remember, LSU went into that game having lost their left tackle that morning and their left guard in the first quarter. 
and that caused LSU's run game to completely crater. They were held under two yards of carry, and that was a run-first team. I don't know that that's really an accurate depiction of what Tennessee is as a football team, and I think that really skews their numbers. And on the other hand, Alabama, look, they're not going to be the same offense that they were last week with Jalen Milrow. They're just not. Even if you think Bryce Young is you know, 85% of what he was before, again, they're going to make those routine plays. They're going to have some semblance of a passing game. They're just going to be a different offense. And so I did that first off. And then my next question was, okay, but let's also assume that, let's just say for the sake of argument, Tennessee played this 85 Chicago Bears. They held them to two yards per play. They got three points out of the game. So I gave them this basically low yardage baseline. And I should say, I didn't affect any of the production stats for Tennessee. I only did this for training the model about how to evaluate scores. Basically, how do you take production and turn it into a score? That part of it, I basically gave it an anchor and held it to the bottom and said, this is what happens when they don't get any yardage. And the fascinating thing there is it changes the score pretty dramatically. Between those two things, it makes it Alabama 34, Tennessee 18. And I think that says a lot about how big the picture difference was from last week to this week. Alabama's viewed as 7 to 10 points worse. Tennessee's viewed as something like 10 points better than they were, maybe 20 points better than they were. Um, And when I went back and did that exercise, it did convince me, uh, along with, I'll say, from explosiveness metrics, if you start looking at EPA-based metrics, Tennessee has an explosiveness rating on offense of 1.24, and it's 1.69 in the passing game. Their explosiveness defensive rating allowed 1.35, actually higher than their offensive rating. Their passing rating allowed is almost exactly the same, 1.65 versus 1.69. In other words, Tennessee's defense is as apt to give up an explosive play as they are to create one. Um, And taken all together with how good I think Alabama's passing game is, I actually think Alabama might probably cover in this game. I I think it's tough. I think Tennessee's going to score some points, certainly. But I'm going to go with Alabama 34, Tennessee 24. Uh, My confidence level is minimal as it has to be with a banged-up quarterback. But when I really dug into it and I started trying to filter for all the noise and junk in these data sets, um, really just taking out the last week and the results of an LSU team that I think was absolutely crippled, uh, and a Texas A&M team that was playing above their heads with healthy players against a backup quarterback, suddenly this starts to look a lot more like you thought it was going to look like. And I think we're probably overreacting a lot to last week's game. Again, basically of the 14 possessions that Alabama played, six were less left empty due to circumstance, missed field goal or turnover. That's not really a realistic thing to be repeated on top of their normal offensive performance. So, yeah, I think Alabama wins, and I think Alabama probably covers. Uh, and I I think it's really going to come down to Alabama's defense more than their offense, but I think Tennessee still, their defense is shaky enough. They're going to let Alabama operate as long as they have competent quarterback play, and I just don't think they can keep pace. Interestingly enough, um, we're both picking Alabama to not cover because the line opened at seven and has already moved to seven and a half. I will say this. We're making a lot of assumptions here. One, I, I have Alabama by 10. So, Oh, well, then there you go. Um, I didn't write it down. I wasn't paying attention. Uh, <laughs> we're making a lot of assumptions here, one being that Bryce Young's going to play and be healthy enough to not be affected. Like he's still going to, if that deep ball's open, he's going to be able to exploit it. They're not going to be able to run single safety all day and really stop the run. Um, we're assuming that that 60, mid 60s percentage against opponents allowed is a little bit of a false number for Tennessee. Um, and we are assuming that Alabama's road wo- woes are a thing of the past. So, Tennessee fans are going to say in the comments, man, y'all are giving a lot of benefit of the doubt to Alabama, and you're right, we are, and maybe it's just because of the history, not of this series, but just of the history of Alabama in general. Any one of those three things rears its ugly head for Alabama, Tennessee probably wins this game. Um, I'm just assuming that that those things are sorted out. Um, it's it's a road game in a crazy atmosphere. I pump up Beaver Stadium a lot and say that's a great place to watch a football game. Tennessee's going to be as loud as, as Beaver Stadium, as the shoe, as LSU would have been maybe last week if it was a night game. So um, 
Bama better be ready. Better be ready to not be doing long checks of the line, things like that. Um, all right, let us know in the sco- in the in the comments what you think the score is going to be. Make sure Tennessee fans, because we haven't been on you too much in the past. We're here now. We're talking about you. Make sure if you haven't yet, like, subscribe, notification bell. But also before you go in the comments, tell us that score. Tell us how bad you're going to beat Bama, and we'll mix it up with you. Thanks so much, y'all. Have a great week, and God bless. Y'all had a bit of a knucklehead moment in this one where I forgot to hit record on my primary audio. Had to use the backup audio on the camera for most of the video. Just hang with us because this is one of our most fun videos we've ever done. Lots of good banter, lots of good discussion. So please don't let the bad audio from this knucklehead influence you too much. College football nerds, we are here talking Penn State and Michigan. Y'all knew we were going to talk about this game. Come on, we got a late start this week, but knuckleheads, we're talking about this game. want to give a shout-out to a Penn State fan, Stephen Light, and a Michigan fan. I think he's a Michigan fan. I was asking Michigan questions. Benjamin V. These two show up and show out every week in uh, in our live show, Josh, in the comments, and they're always respectful in the comments. We have a hard time sometimes because we go on late People are a little bit lathered up, um, and it gets chippy in the comments. So there's two, uh, one on each side that we want to give a shout-out to to this one. Josh, this game, we talked about this game right before we hit record. This is a tough one to pick, man. Um, But (laughs) there's an interesting note about, like, I got an argument earlier this week, small argument, it was a respectful discussion, I should say, about Penn State's defense, because I said Penn State's defense is good, they're not elite. Um, we might can say the same about Michigan's defense because we don't know yet. The reason we don't know is because of the offenses these two teams have played, especially Michigan. Why don't you share some numbers with us on just how bad those have been? Yeah, so we went and looked at these. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence. Scoring offenses that have been faced by these two teams. And I've got to be honest, it may be the worst set of scoring offenses that I've ever seen a P5 team play by midway through the season. Michigan has played five teams ranked 98th or worse in scoring, four teams in the bottom 10. Four of the bottom 10 have all played Michigan in week seven. Uh, That is Indiana. So we'll start the highest. Maryland is the best, and they're only actually 40th in the country. Indiana is the second best and they're 98th. Third best would be Yukon at 121st. Hawaii is next, 124th. Iowa is 127th in the country and Colorado State, the Rams would be the worst scoring offense in the country, 131st. Now before you get too excited if you're a Penn State fan, you have not faced anyone in the top 40 yourselves. Uh, The best offense that Penn State's faced was 43rd in Ohio. Purdue is 48th. Central Michigan is 88th. Auburn, as we keep saying, and not a good team, 112th in the country in scoring offense. And Northwestern currently tied with UConn for 121st in scoring offense. So, yeah, uh... Pretty, pretty spectacular here. Between the two teams, they have played five of the worst ten scoring offenses in the country. And the defenses have great statistics. And It's not like I'm bashing them on that side, but man, does it make it hard to evaluate. Yeah, and before y'all get mad, we have a long-standing tradition on this show because we've covered a lot of Clemson games in saying that you playing bad teams does not make your team bad. I saw somebody on Twitter, I keep bringing up these arguments I get into, but somebody on Twitter today, I think it was a Tennessee fan, said, yeah, but Ohio State hasn't played anybody. They can't be good. Georgia hasn't played anybody. Alvin hasn't played anybody. This is the most ridiculous thing. Like, are you telling me if if 2020 Alabama or 2019 LSU played unranked teams, 0-12, to you know, or 1-12, to 
that means they can't be good, that's silly. So you can still have a good team, a good defense, and play bad offenses. That's not what we're saying. We just thought it was a really interesting stat, and it also speaks to how much we're going to struggle from here on out picking these two teams and picking a winner for this one. Josh, I'm going to ask you now, because we're going to shift to offense a little bit, because what we were talking about was this is going to be a struggle bus game, right, in terms of you know field position and being able to score. Vegas has got this over at 52 and a half. I'm, ta- I'm hammering that under. Um but does it come down to the quarterbacks in this situation and who you like more, Clifford or J.J.? Like, is that where you're at right now? Well, that was my thought, right, was that the quarterback situation seems to be the thing that matters the most in this kind of game. Because in my mind, looking at the defenses and sort of where they're at, I kind of start to think, OK, this is going to be a game driven by turnovers. So the better quarterback is probably going to be the quarterback least likely to turn the ball over at you can go look at Alabama for the way that goes if you have a bad quarterback. And I I think personally I would probably pick Clifford over McCarthy. Uh, I know some Michigan fans are probably screaming about that. People know that I'm not that high on Clifford. I still think he's a better quarterback than McCarthy. I didn't like what I saw against uh, Iowa in particular. I think when he things are kind of easy for him, he looks pretty good. But when things are difficult, I, I just don't feel like he's got a full grasp of the position. But that's the quarterback in isolation. And I know you made a counterpoint when we were talking about this earlier that obviously it's not just about the quarterback, right? Yeah, it's not just about the quarterback. And for me, I I think I like Clifford more now as a quarterback, especially with his 17 years of experience. Um, But I think I like Michigan's skill players a little more. Now, Ronnie Bell hasn't shown up as much as I expected him to this year. It might be coming off that injury, might be part of it. But Coram's a dude. Um, I think that he's, you know, the thing that I think a lot, and this is this is something you've talked about on the defensive side of the ball a lot um, for teams in terms of, like, big-time matchups, explosive plays matter. Michigan, for all of their faults in the last couple of years offensively, they've been able to manage, I don't care what game it is, including Georgia last year, they've managed some forcing coverage bust, explosive plays, or something in the run game that's a 50-60 yard touchdown run. And I'm not saying Penn State can't do that, but in terms of like being part of the DNA of the offense, I think it's partly skill players, partly scheme. And that's why, at least early in this discussion, I'm leaning a little bit Michigan, but I'm also surprised, Josh, two things. And I want you to talk about this. 52.5 over-under. Seven-point favorite for Michigan. We saw Tennessee was only a three-point favorite traveling to LSU last week. Um, NC State was a a three-and-a-half-point favorite hosting unranked um, Florida State. Seven-point favorite. That seems like a bigger number than what I think it should be based on how much I'm struggling to pick this game. It it does, and there there are a couple things there that are hard to unpack. One is the over the over under sitting there in the fifties, which isn't a high number, but for this one it feels like it is. I think that's indicative of the fact that in football it's kind of hard to hold teams below twenty five points. It certainly happens happens a lot more in the Big Ten than it does a lot of other conferences. Let's just be real. Uh, but in general, if you have functional offenses, they're going to hit some big plays, and you can throw up enough jump balls over the course of the game that you can score twenty points. Um, I think the number that Michigan is laying here is sort of surprising. I mean, I think Penn State is a good football team. And I think it really speaks to the fact that they do have a lot of confidence in Michigan, in Vegas. And I think you're right. I think a lot of it comes down to the skill players that Michigan has, their explosiveness. I have a lot of faith in the ability for Michigan to find a guy like Corum or Ronnie Bell that can make them a big play downfield. I have a lot less faith right now in Penn State. I know they have a good pair of young running backs, but when I look at the receiving core, um, you know, Parker Washington, or yeah, he's not, he's not Johan Dotson. And Lambert Smith is not quite some of the guys they've had of your, I, I think they've got solid receivers I don't know that they have a dude. I mean, Dotson was a dude for them, and I think it's probably one of the more underrated losses in college football that they don't really have that piece, and it makes everything a lot more janky, for lack of a better word. 
Uh, and I think what Vegas is essentially hinting is that Michigan has more pieces to try to find a way to score points, to put 20, 30 points on the board um, and do it with chunk plays. But in both cases, I think what you're seeing really is a reflection of Michigan's skill players being uh, a little more scrappy, a little more explosive. And then Clifford, who's a very hot and cold quarterback, but has the ability to make some hero throws and some hero plays. And he can be scrappy and scramble and extend a drive and score points. And so you end up with two teams. And what I really feel like is going to be in a game where no one's going to really have a lot of rhythm. I don't really feel like there's going to be a lot of consistent production offensively for either team. I think you're just going to see maybe some random spurts and scores. As I said, in my mind, it's more a turnover-driven thing. And, you know, how do you evaluate that? It's it's tough. And, Josh, Penn State fans are going to rightly say, wait a minute, you always say that even against bad teams, if you can go on the road and beat a name-brand team and beat the brakes off of them, that says something good about you. And what Penn State did to Auburn, to me, is something, it says something good about Penn State that we can't just throw away, right? Like, Georgia beat them about the same at home. Penn State went on the road and did this to them. Um, And so, I don't want to completely dismiss that. I think they still deserve credit for that in a way that should help us, you know, inform us on our pick in this game. And and that's probably one of the reasons I'm struggling with this seven-point spread, because I don't think Auburn's a good team at all. Like, I think they're bad. They're going to have a losing record. They're going to fire their coach. But I think when Auburn was still 2-1, and one, hosting a big team, crowd lathered up, beating them 41-12 means something. And they still had T.J. Finley for half that game. We keep bringing that up. Like, that, their offense... That's not a good thing, offense. Josh. That's, that's a negative. That's not a positive. <laughs> well, it's a relative positive, right? So we've seen them a couple weeks now with Robbie Ashford. And as you say in the South, God bless them. They don't have a passing game right now at all. And TJ Finley is not a great quarterback, but he was more functional than what they've got right now, which is just a bag lit on fire left on someone's porch, okay? Uh, and, and, a, and A bag full and, of and, what? Full, <laughs> it's a bag full of demonetization is what it is. Uh, yeah, and, and Penn State did actually have to face an Auburn team that was playing for something, I think. Now, there is a little bit in my mind that that was a game that was 14-6 at the half, and then Penn State got up, and it did really seem pretty clear that with a quarterback injury and with a score getting away, Auburn quit. So I have a hard time judging based on that, but I'm still impressed. Well, but Michigan went into Kinnick, got a 13-point win over Iowa, and it was just 13 nothing at the half. Michigan managed 7-6, seven and 7-7. Seven, seven. That's the four-quarter scores. But here's something that I thought was a little impressive, because of what I expected to see when I looked at the Penn State game based on watching it and how I remembered it, And the Michigan game versus Iowa, based on watching it and how I remembered it, is that I felt like they got a lot of short fields and and converted those short fields into points. But I'm looking at Michigan-Iowa here, and you've got 75-yard drive, 54-yard, 61-yard, 67. Like, these are drives down the field, and for all of Iowa's offensive problems, They've still got a great defense, and Michigan moved the ball down the field to get their points. Same thing with Penn State. They had a lot of long drives where they got their points, and that's maybe where Vegas is seeing this 52.5. But in general, I have concerns about both of these offenses being able to score against the defenses, which brings in mega variability. One pick six, one block punt could turn this game on its ear, but tell me what the model says, and then we'll go off of that. So we took the numbers and we fed them into the model to sort of see what we could get out of it, and I think the results are pretty interesting. The first thing that you want to take away is that Penn State's offensive and defensive numbers are skewed by competition, and in particular, the defensive numbers, 91% of opponent rushing averages and 84% of opponent passing averages. That's a good pass defense, and it's a pretty darn average run defense. It's surprising to me, and you can, I think to some degree you can chalk it up to who they've played, right? Their opponents only average three yards a carry and a little under seven yards per attempt, Um, but it isn't great numbers. And Michigan is better, 77% against the run, 83% against the pass, but those numbers are still not 
elite, either one of them. 77% against the run is very good. 83% against the pass, I would say, is good. Um, and I think even worse there, you know, Michigan's opponents, a little over three yards of carry, almost six yards per attempt, which is pretty miserable. And when the numbers are that low, it makes it hard for teams to distinguish themselves. So I think that's an important caveat, both in our model and probably every other metric, is anytime you try to do opponent adjustments, it kind of penalizes these two teams because you can't hold teams to zero yardage. You just can't. It's almost impossible in the sport of football um, to do that versus any sort of competently coached football team. Michigan has a significant edge in yardage, six yard per play to five yard per play. And where that turns around is a 37 to 24 scoring margin. So it has it about 13 points different. Again, the scoring model is unique to each team based off past performance. And I think that does reflect the fact that Michigan has been more consistent in scoring. Their floor has been about 27 points. Penn State's floor is 17. You end up with here eh, 61 points predicted. So our model is actually suggesting the over and it's suggesting Michigan to cover. I don't know that I buy that for all the reasons we just talked about. And I'll, I'll go ahead and lead in right now to talk about, you know, maybe where I'm at at the game um, and my personal prediction. I, I do think Michigan, in my opinion, is the team to pick to win the game. Um, I'm not going to pick them to cover. I, I have this being, I'm going to say 20 to 14 Michigan over Penn State. I, I'm going to be surprised if Michigan is able to pull away and score these this kind of a number on Penn State. And a big part of it is, you know, Iowa, 27 points. I think Iowa um, is a very good, like, very good defense. Have a lot of respect for them, obviously, but Iowa also has no offense whatsoever. They give you the ball constantly. It was a struggle for Michigan. I was not impressed with McCarthy and how he moved the football. The flip side, I will say, is on Penn State's side of the ball. I don't know where their points are going to come from at all. And you look at their last result against Northwestern, 17-7. Weird game. And I get it. Five turnovers. And somebody was asking me, because I was doing some stuff trying to talk about, like, Texas A&M and Alabama and Missouri, Georgia, that the turnovers kind of hid how those games really were behind the scenes from a projection standpoint. Because you don't expect a team to turn it over five times like Penn State did against Northwestern or four times like Alabama did against Texas A&M. It's not a repeatable thing, so it tends not to really matter. My concern is, really, in spite of that, Penn State punted the ball more against Northwestern than Alabama did. They had about a yard per play less than Alabama had against Texas A&M. So even when you throw the turnovers out of the equation, especially given the fact that Northwestern turned the ball over a few times themselves, Penn State really just didn't move the ball that great regardless. So that's why I have Michigan 20 to 14. That's why I'm very skeptical of the model having 37-24 with such a high number. It just, to me, it seems unrealistic that these teams are going to score that many points. And now, Daniel, I'm curious for your opinion on that. I mean, do you think I'm off base? Do you think this is a high number? Your struggle bus comments seem to suggest the opposite, but I'm curious to hear what you have to say. And welcome to my much better audio. You made it for one segment, maybe two. Um, I forgot to hit record on my audio, so we got crappy camera audio. Thank you for staying this long. And since you're already here, go ahead, like, subscribe, notification bell, because you get to hear me sound like this most of the time. Josh, Penn State fans are going to tell you Northwestern game was in a freaking monsoon. And because of that, you can't really blame them. Now, Ohio State fans say in 2015, they lost to Michigan State's backup quarterback because it was raining at home. But And we don't let them get away with that. But this game, I kind of let them get away with it because I don't think there's really another number. There's not, not another analog to that poor of a performance. So I'm willing to throw it out. Um, it's on the road. Our model says they cover. Vegas has got Michigan with a pretty healthy number. And I'm going to say they're all wrong. Give me Penn State 17, Michigan 14. And not just because I'm trying to be team team Steven Light on this one. I think that... I think the Penn State's going to win it, I, I, and I don't really have an explanation why other than I've seen stretches of clean offense more this year against good teams like Purdue, like not good team but good defense in Auburn. Um, 
and I've got that seventeen fourteen. But Josh, tell me, what would surprise you more in this game? A Penn State win or them hitting the over? Them being both uh, these teams. Maybe this says a lot about where I'm at mentally, but uh, hitting the over is more surprising to me than Penn State winning. Um, I think Michigan is slightly more likely. I think me sleeping on the couch because my wife's a Penn State <laughs> fan, even more likely. Um, but the over is the thing that I just don't get and I don't see, and I don't understand where that number is coming from. And I'm probably completely wrong because usually when I feel that way, I am. Uh, there's a reason Vegas is still open and making a lot of money. Uh, but, yeah, the over-under just confuses me. All right, y'all, let us know in the comments two things. One, give us your score prediction in the comments, and we'll mix it up with you down there. And also let us know what would surprise you, the other team winning or both teams hitting the over. I'm interested to see why Vegas has this as such a high number given what we're kind of trained to think about both these defenses. Thanks so much, y'all. Have a great week. And God bless. College Football Nerds here talking TCU and Oklahoma State. Another massive showdown this weekend. Week 7 is bringing it, Josh. I got Josh here with me. We're getting nerdy with y'all. Um, Josh, we did the TCU-Kansas game last week. Both picked TCU to win. Proved to be correct, even though we took some slings and arrows from Kansas fans. And this week, it's another matchup of undefeateds. And Josh... We just got finished talking about Michigan and Iowa or Michigan, Iowa game in the process of talking about Michigan and Penn state. And those teams have faced a lot of teams that don't play good offense. Some play good defense. And that was a defensive struggle discussion. And this is kind of the opposite. So when you go into predicting a game where both defenses are known to yield a good bit, um, really, how do you how do you predict that game, or what really sticks out, and sort of things that you think about when it might end up a track meet? Anytime you start dealing with games that are going to be on either end of the scoring stratosphere, uh, which is one where you're dealing with a really low scoring game or the other high scoring game, um, you start having to figure out who's going to have more chunk plays, more negative plays. Uh, because those tend to sort of set the boundaries. And we talked sometimes in the past about having freeze points and stall points and break points and sort of this idea that offenses have a certain point where they shut down and a certain point where they just run rampant. It doesn't really matter if you get 8 yards per play or 12, because at that point you're just moving the ball on a continual basis anyway. The thing that stops you is actually negative plays. It's not so much how much you're getting on average. It's an interception or it's a 7-yard sack. Um, something that puts you far enough behind the sticks that now one incompletion will turn into a loss set of downs. And completion percentage is always a big statistic in that world because you can have really, really high yard per play numbers, but if you run once and throw twice, if you string two incompletions together, uh, you're going to have a turnover or, you know, turnover downs or punt or whatever because you're going to get to fourth down, even though maybe the next drive you complete three passes in a row and they're all 20 yards and you go 60 yards in three plays, it doesn't matter if you string together incompletions. So with all that said, it really comes down to consistency, to quarterback play. How well can you get out on third downs? How much do you give up negative plays? I care a little less in these games about explosiveness. Now explosiveness is big because what it does is it means you don't have to string together quite as many plays we talked last year quite a bit with Georgia that if they got in a game where they had to score 40 points, they'd probably be in trouble. And the reason for that is their drives would frequently be 10 to 14 play drives. And if you do that, it only takes one sack on any one of those sets of downs to put you behind the sticks to put you in trouble to get a first down. And it's so hard to sustain long drives like that on a continual basis. Um, I think these teams probably don't have that problem. They're probably going to have explosiveness, which means fewer plays needed to sustain a drive long enough to score. But your ability to avoid negative plays, one, and two, the quarterback's ability to consistently execute those plays, that's, for example, high completion percentage, not missing your deep shots, those are the things that allow you to win a barn burner um, because it usually comes down to missed opportunities in a high-scoring game versus in a low-scoring game where it's more about 
trying to make things happen and you know you get the little monster nittany lion back there and uh doesn't take much for the the witcher to sort of knock him off right so um yeah this is a game i think that's going to be defined more by missed opportunities than made opportunities because i think both these offenses are going to be able to move the ball quite a bit and put up a lot of points josh one of the things that annoys me a little bit i've been fighting with people on twitter with this all year is this notion that you look oklahoma state i don't think they have a great defense but i think that a lot of the defensive numbers that are going to show up in modeling that are going to show up in overall ranking statistics come from two games, um, Baylor and Central Michigan. And these are two games where Oklahoma State led at one point against Central Michigan 51-15, to and at one point against Baylor 23-3. to So maybe a little less the Baylor one because it was still 23. Like That's not a huge blowout. But in both cases, this is a situation where they were facing offenses that were in comeback mode and having to throw a lot and having to and, – and maybe relaxing intentionally with a prevent defense. So from those two games, I'm not really that upset with Oklahoma State defensively. Now, 31 to Texas Tech when Donovan Smith's not playing, that's a little concerning, and that's 31 and three quarters. They figured it out in the fourth quarter, but they gave up 31 and three quarters – um, but even that game, when you look into the production of that game, um, you know, it's 6.1 yards per attempt. It's 3 point something yards per carry running. So they didn't really produce in terms of yards per play enough to merit a 31 point total. So I think that, you know, and maybe I'm tipping my hand a little bit here. I think that between these two teams, both of them have not-so-great defenses. That's accepted. But Oklahoma State's not-so-great defense maybe is a little bit of fool's gold, and maybe they're better than advertised. Yeah, it's an interesting interesting conversation point. Do you mind if I go ahead and start bringing up some model stuff so that we have a baseline for the conversation? No, I think that's a good, good idea. All right, so this is our awkward live segue, trying to be all natural here this is as natural as you're ever going to see a nerd be uh oklahoma state gives up in our model 100 percent of opponent rushing averages and 113 percent of opponent passing averages to your point their numbers might be slightly inflated but if they are they're inflating them to a point that's bad i mean 100 of opponent rushing averages for a p5 team is a bad number you still got bad teams in there right you still played central michigan you still played i don't know arizona state i think they theoretically play football right now and you only manage 100%. So when you compare it to the teams those teams played, you don't really want to look like an average pack team or an average G5 team. And that's kind of where Oklahoma State is against the run. And against the pass, 113% is just a really bad number. You don't want to be over 10% worse than opponent averages. You're, 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 you're worse than average. And worse than average considering half the teams people played have been out of conference, weak opponents in general. TCU is a somewhat solid run defense, 83% of opponent averages. I, I would say they're reasonably good. There's reasons to be a little questionable there. Again, scheduling comes into play. You've played an Oklahoma team that I don't know quite where they're at. Um, and then Dylan Gabriel goes down injured, which really affected the run stats that Oklahoma was able to put up in that game uh, compared to uh, other statistics. And you also faced Kansas when Kansas loses their running quarterback. Uh, so that does inflate your run statistics a little bit. Uh, 103% of opponent passing averages. Again, that's that would I would consider that to be a bad number. Um, it's a little more in the mediocre range than where Oklahoma State is, but you do have two defenses. One, Oklahoma State's that is, I would say, objectively bad, and these numbers from Oklahoma State are somewhat similar to what Ole Misses have been the past couple years when we've done shows. Uh, and TCU's numbers are mediocre. They're comparable right now. Oddly enough, I'm going to look at this right now because I think this just dawned on me. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're pretty similar to Tennessee's. Um, so, yeah, you've you basically got Tennessee's defense playing Ole Miss's defense if you're an SEC fan. I'm sure Big 12 fans don't appreciate that. But for the way I, I wrap my head around it with the type of teams they play and where they've been at, and I say this from having seen those teams play at a pretty consistent level for the past few years, one is bad and one's worse. And then offensively, I think these teams are very, very good. So, yeah, it still comes back to me to the fact that I think both of them are going to move the ball quite a bit, right? On the flip side, for me, you got to go back a few weeks for a little bit of concern with TCU. Uh, 
they never really got separation with SMU. And I know SMU, there's history there. I get it. Um, 42-34 against a team that got murdered by UCF last weekend. Um, 38-31 against a Kansas team without their starting quarterback. Oklahoma, they still gave up 24 points. Um, I don't know that there's a shame in that when, you know, Dylan Gabriel's healthy. But having said all that, like, I still think there's some question marks around TCU. And and there were some stretches against Kansas where I thought that there was football, some bad football being played. Um, But on the flip side, my guy Spencer Sanders, who I flagged in the offseason, so like in August, as somebody I was really high on for this year, he's not been great. Like, his baseline numbers are pretty good. But if you look at some of these games, like if you get into the numbers, they're not amazing. So, Josh, I'm really struggling with this. And usually I go first after like the model discussion. Um, but I'm going to let you give your pick first. And, and then I'm going to think about the reasoning you give and maybe make my own pick. So why don't you go first? So I'm going to lean on the model a little bit here. So we were talking about those statistics the model scoring statistic, which is what most people, I think, look at and then go, okay, great, and then close our video down since 50 to 42. And I often note that the yardage statistics are more important than the score statistics. And there, it's pretty remarkably lopsided. It, it actually has Oklahoma State sitting at 5.8 yards per play and TCU at 8.6. That's, that's a gap guys two and a half yards per play is big usually anything around two yards per play is a blowout that to me is enough to give me a little more confidence in tcu and it backs up a lot of what i felt like was true between these two teams i've always felt like spencer sanders has a lot of potential as a quarterback and he's always been very streaky he's good and bad off and on um i'm a little confused why Adrian Martinez is the superstar this year. I think people are so surprised to see Kansas State undefeated. And, you know, Adrian Martinez is putting up good numbers running. He's not putting up good numbers passing or not on any sort of consistent basis. And at some point, they're going to play some better teams. And I think I think he's going to look a lot more pedestrian. Spencer Sanders, I think, will scale better. And he's always going to be able to produce somewhat. But he is hot and cold. I think Max Duggan has a little more potential to just be a more traditional passer to execute at a higher level more consistently see more consistently and i have more trust in max duggan in that tco offense to be able to win a shootout i have more trust in max duggan to be a consistent quarterback and for that reason i'm gonna pick tcu and i'm uh just to avoid borrowing from the model i'll tweak it a little bit um you know i'll say 51 42, um, yeah, taking a point off it. I, I think it's going to be a shootout. Either team could win. It won't surprise me. And that's that's not a cop-out. Uh, I, I really do think this is a game that could really hinge on turnovers. But it does come down to the fact that TCU, let me throw another one out there. If you want to talk like explosiveness metrics, right? TCU's explosive, explosiveness numbers, 1.51 on offense to 1.38 allowed on defense. So, badly explosive defense in terms of what they've allowed, but still more on offense overall passing um, around 1.8, 1.9 in both metrics. That's kind of rough that they're really high explosiveness offense and defense, but Oklahoma state's on the other side of it. Their explosiveness metrics defensively are worse than their explosiveness metrics are good offensively. And so it's just a little bit of edges that sort of pile up in a game that I think is going to be high scoring. I think TCU is just the more consistent program uh, in terms of their ability to sustain offensive production. And that's why I tend to lean TCU for the same reasons that I lean with them over the Kansas game, the same reasons that I think they won, they won the, Kansas game. the Kansas game. So I would not put money on this game. Just straight up, if I were betting on this game, I would not put money. But if I were to put money on something about this game, it would actually be the under. I think both of these defenses are better than we think they are. I think especially Oklahoma State's defense is getting beaten up in the media, beaten up by the fans because of points they gave up in games that were 
totally in control, especially that Central Michigan game. Um, the thing is, though, what you said about Max Duggan, I actually agree on. I think Spencer Sanders, if he gets hot, they could run away with it. But on average, Max Duggan's going to be the more productive quarterback between the two. I think this is a pick em game on a neutral site. Um, I'm going to go with TCU 33, Oklahoma State 30. And I don't have a lot of confidence about that. But what I do have confidence about is these defenses playing better than they've shown so far this year in the raw numbers. And that that means I'm taking that under 68.5 that we're at right now. Josh, give me one final thought on this game in that are we going to – whomever wins this game, are we going to – overrate them too much or jumping them up to that kind of six rank tier like five six in our top 10 or in a national top 10 is it going to be deserved i we're at the end of the video and hopefully people that have stuck around now like us well enough to hear my honest opinion i think there's going to be an overreaction um i I've been hesitant to rank these teams particularly high in my top 10. Again, they're good offenses, and I think they're legitimately good offenses. And TCU, I think in particular, is kind of underrated nationally. For whatever reason, they seem to be one of the better ones, maybe on par with Tennessee, I'm not sure. Um, but I think the defenses are shaky, and I, frankly, I think there are a lot of shaky defenses in the Big 12 right now. Uh, and then when you look at schedule, it, it's going to pan out pretty quickly to find out who these teams are, right? Because Oklahoma State turns around and they got to play Texas, Kansas State, and Kansas in the next three games. TCU is going to have to turn around, uh, and they're going to have to play Kansas State. And then they still have Texas on their schedule. They still have Baylor on their schedule. They still have Iowa State on their schedule. They've had and a good Texas had, Tech team, right? They've had really backloaded schedules, uh, and I think that's. The reality of that, I think Kansas is also in that, has sort of created some, somewhere along the line, we're going to find out there's some bad perceptions about what the pecking order in the Big 12 is. That is not a shot at either one of these teams. I'm not saying I have any reason to think that these teams are grossly overrated, but I think we're going to find out someone is. Uh, and I think it's going to be interesting to see that is the positive on a round robin conference, that, which is what the Big 12 is right now, that they all have to play each other. So there's no way for a schedule to hide warts, not saying Georgia maybe has a weak schedule, but let's just say hypothetically Georgia maybe dodges the better teams in the SEC this year with the exception of Tennessee. They don't have that privilege in the Big 12. So we're going to find out who they are and whether or not they're overrated this week. Who cares, right? You know, the playoff isn't decided in a week. We're going to know who they are by the end of the season, and that all, that's all that matters. So right now, to the extent that we're negative or projecting, we're just trying to guess where they're going to end up at the end of the year. If you are who they think they are, you know that's going to prove itself on the field. So my opinion doesn't really matter at that point. I will say that we might overreact to the winner of this game and underreact or overreact to the what we perceive as badness of the loser of this game. I don't know that the loser of this game is, is you know, I wouldn't be surprised if the loser of this game ends up playing in that Big 12 championship game. I think one of these two teams will be one of the two teams in the Big 12 championship game, not necessarily the winner of this game because you're both undefeated right now. So you've got a little bit of headroom uh, relative to the, to the rest of the league. Um, right now I am feeling that one of the other teams might end up being Texas. All right, let us know in the comments what you think this score is going to be. And, uh, man, thanks for hanging with us this long. Send all your hate mail to Josh the Grim Reaper at cfbnerds.avenue, um, <laughs> and, and he'll respond to you in kind. Thanks so much, y'all, for hanging out with us this long. Have a great week, and God bless.